This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Well, welcome to another exciting episode of Bobcast. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. And that's all we have for today, folks. Is it, though? Till next time, tote zines. Shortest episode ever. <laughs> Worst episode ever. Ever. Ever is a long time. It is a long time. What are we really doing here? So we're picking up where we left off last week. We began a series on covenant theology. And what is covenant, Andrew? Well, that's a complicated question. Well, what's it not? Well, as we talked about last time, it's not dispensationalism. That's about all we've done so far because we don't move very fast here. It's true. Slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. Kind of. So last week, we basically introduced our study of covenant theology, talked about some of the basics of covenantal reading of scripture and why that matters and set over against dispensationalism and other approaches. This week, we want to take up a bit more of a historical survey of covenant theology from the Reformation until now look at some of the various views and some of the disagreements that are even raging still in our day, uh, just to kind of get some background as to the covenant theology world situation that we and our churches are in at the present. That's true. Fact check, true. <laughs> it probably wouldn't actually pass an online fact checker because nothing does. <laughs> Facebook banned. Yep. So follow Bobcast on Parlor. Just kidding. We don't know how to do that. <laughs> oh, although uh, interesting story time. Uh, so a few weeks ago, somebody decided to using Bobcast at gmail.com, our email address, <laughs> sign us up for match.com. <laughs> so find us on match. So yeah, as we seek to, like Abraham Kuyper, claim every square inch of the internet, <laughs> you can now follow Bobcast on match.com. No, you can't. We uh, shut that down <laughs> pretty quickly. If that was done by one of our listeners, there's probably better ways to meet your spouse. Particularly that involve using your own email and not ours. Yeah, if you uh, use the name Bobcast for a dating platform, uh, you might scare off every single potential suitor. Right. We're not popular with the ladies, the ladies. or the men. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm pretty glad for that. <laughs> We're just not popular. But... We will extend our thanks if this in any way somehow gained us more listeners. <laughs> yeah. We have a 46% growth rate ever since that happened. Huh. Weird. <laughs> we haven't even been on the air for a month until last time. And, and yeah. <laughs> Gave them time to catch up on old episodes. Yeah. But before they decide if they want to commit, you know, and actually meet in person and go on a date. 
<laughs> anyway, so history of covenant theology. So we want to start off here. Um, what is a covenant? Like, what does that really mean? There's about as many different answers to that question as there have been people who have asked that question. So what we're going to do here is we're going to walk through the history of the definition of a covenant. One of the first ones to use this term in Reformed theology was Casper Olivianus. Who was Casper Olivianus? Well, Olivianus was one of the co-authors, along with Zacharias Ursinus, who is largely credited with the writing of the Heidelberg Catechism. Casper Olivianus then was a late 16th century Reformed theologian and pastor and professor. Olivianus wrote a book, his main work really, outside of the Heidelberg Catechism, called An Exposition of the Apostles' Creed, or The Substance of the Covenant. So Casper Olivianus, in his introduction to basically this commentary on the Apostles' Creed, goes and gives us uh, something of an idea of what the covenant is. So just for context, I mean, here he's about to exposit, as I said, the Apostles' Creed, which are also known as the Articles of Faith. These Articles of Faith are basically 12 statements talking about the Trinity, in other words, who God is, and then what God does in relation to his creation, particularly for those who believe, as opposed to the kingdom of darkness. So these are the 12 items of faith that every Christian must believe. And Olivianus talks about how these articles of faith contain a summary of the doctrine delivered by Christ the King to the apostles. And these articles of the kingdom of Christ communicate the privileges offered and presented to all who repent and believe. And so it's basically, what do you need to believe to be a true citizen of the kingdom of Christ? So what I'm getting at here is his covenant definition revolves around the meaning of the kingdom administered to the people of God, what it means to be a kingdom dweller. He says, and this is on page 10 of the Exposition of the Apostles' Creed from the Classical Reform Theology series, volume two. He says, the kingdom of Christ in this world is the administration of salvation by which Christ the King himself outwardly through the gospel and baptism gathers to himself and calls to salvation a people or visible church in which many hypocrites are mixed. He goes on, the universal administration of this kingdom of Christ is that new covenant. So he's speaking mainly here of the new covenant, but he goes on to say, by his merit, Christ the priest and king of the church ratified this covenant forever between God and us, and by his efficacy, he daily administers it in us, citing Daniel 9, interestingly. So what we could sum this all up, basically, is that Olivianus is saying the covenant is the administration of the kingdom of Christ and what he's done to collect the people for himself throughout the ages. So starting especially with the individual Abraham and the promise to his family, and then how that promise expands to then include a whole national people and ultimately people from every single tribe, tongue, and nation. So it becomes a universal administration of the kingdom of Christ, ultimately. And so we're seeing here in Olivianus something we talked about last week is that covenant theology is interested in and focused on the unity of Scripture and the unity of God's people throughout Scripture and even up to the present day. Yeah, it's the grand work, the great plan of God in how he saves and gathers his people, which, again, we remember even then the church is literally a congregation, a gathering for the worship of 
God. Now, another interesting look at Covenant from early Reformed theology uh, I found in Francis Turretin's Institutes of Atlantic Theology. He doesn't offer a definition, per se. A lot of early Reformed theology isn't really going to a length to define covenants. For instance, you look at Calvin, he doesn't say a covenant is X. He talks about covenant a lot, but there's not really the quest to specifically define it that comes up later. But one of the things that Turretin does is he ties covenant closely to revelation. So he says that God is our God covenanted in Christ as he has revealed himself to us in his word, not only as the object of knowledge, but also of worship. And true religion, which theology teaches, consists of these two things. So basically, covenant is God's way of relating to us. And this kind of hints at what we also see in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 paragraph 1 where one of the definitional elements of a covenant at least a covenant between god and man is god's voluntary divine condescension god being god revealing himself to man in a certain way for a certain purpose and this is uh, again what you said yeah in, in continuity with what turretin was saying there of uh, god revealing himself for a purpose of knowledge and worship and then what uh, olivianus was also saying westminster confession says in a certain way uh, olivianus uses the word administration uh, you may hear also words like economy or dispensation it's all the way in which god acts in relation to his people but we also have to make the proper historical distinction so for instance the word dispensation occurs in the westminster standards it's not talking about the same kind of dispensation as dispensationalism which didn't emerge until the 19th century much later so we need to understand that just because we see a term in history like this doesn't mean that we can load it with all its modern meaning Right. It's an old way of saying administration or management. Yeah. Economy is another one that you mentioned. And this brings to mind one of the classic early works of covenant theology, which is Herman Witsius's Economy of the Covenants. It's still available. It's in English as a two volume work, which is really kind of laying a lot of the groundwork for later covenant theology. Another phrase that you'll actually find, you just reminded me of this uh, when you said work, is actually the word work. You may actually see it occasionally in a number of magisterial reformed writers, 16th century. You mentioned how Calvin doesn't say covenant is, a definition of covenant is X. But you do see them use phrases like God's divine work. Divine work is a common way to start referring to God's covenant, his management, his economy. And this might seem kind of strange to us because we are living at the point in history we are. And for anyone who's looked at or studied covenant theology, there's been, particularly in the 20th century and continuing into the 21st century, a lot of debate and a lot of attempts by various theologians and exegetes to try to come up with a unifying definition of a covenant. And ironically, it ends up serving to then create different strands of Reformed theology, mostly in agreement with one another, honestly. 
but with different emphases on different aspects of God's work. Basically, these views will boil down to three types of how the covenant works, which we'll get to later. You know, one emphasis is on the covenant and election are basically the exact same thing. Some will say that covenant and election, that is, I'm talking about the decree of election before the creation of the earth. The covenant and decree of election are mutually exclusive, totally different things. And others will say that they are parallels and that the decree of election is basically the original model for the covenant in history. So we'll get to all that over time, but that's just a little point of reference for where we're going. So as we begin to look at the 20th century and later debates over a covenant, since this is Bobcast, a good starting point, and I think a good and helpful definition in a lot of ways is that that Bob Inc. gives in Reform Dogmatics, Volume 2, page 569. It says, in Scripture, covenant is the fixed form in which the relation of God to his people is depicted and presented. And even where the word does not occur, we nevertheless always see the two parties, as it were, in dialogue with each other, dealing with each other, with God calling people to conversion, reminding them of their obligations, and obligating himself to provide all that is good. So I think that this is a good definition. Um, I think it's consistent with what we've already looked at, for instance, with the Westminster Standards and God's condescension, and also the relationship to Revelation. Covenant is more or less how God relates to us, how he relates to his people. Right. In this quote that you read, it sounds like he's primarily talking about this covenant in history, but it's actually found in Reform Dogmatics, Volume 2, page 569. And around in this section, Bob Inc. is actually contextually talking about the will of God. So it's very much related to the decree of God before the foundations of the earth. And this is something that actually sets him apart then to a, a later 20th century Reformed theologian, Klaus Skilder, who was a professor at the theological school in Kampen in the Netherlands. Skilder gives the definition, the covenant is a mutual agreement between God and his people established by himself, but maintained by virtue of his gracious work by himself and his people as two parties. You could hear some similarities from what Bobink had said. We see that there's two parties, as it were, in dialogue with each other, dealing with each other, with God calling his people to conversion, reminding them of obligations. But Skilder, unlike Bobink, focuses mainly on the historical revelation of the covenant. So that the covenant, as it develops and is shown in the history recorded in Scripture. And Klaus Skilder, his approach and his work is still remains very influential to this day, for instance, in the Canadian Reformed churches, which trace their history and heritage back to Skilder's liberated churches in the Netherlands. Right, which also then find their roots in the Reformierde of Kirchen in the Netherlands, basically what would be the Netherlands equivalent of the Christian Reformed Church in America. So the church that was formed as a result of the secessionists in the uh, Ofskating and the, the Lianzi party led by Kuiper in the late 19th century, those two formed together. So in other words, there's a, a strong relationship to the 19th century Reformation movement in the Netherlands. And so yet another approach to covenant and to defining covenant, again, early 20th century, 
Dutch theologian Gerhardus Voss. And I think he's really helpful in looking at some of this stuff because he's a little more clear and explicit at certain points than Bavink is. So in his biblical theology, Voss talks about the Berit, which is the Old Testament word for the covenant. For him, the the emphasis on the agreement, which is more prominent in Bavink and in Skilder, the agreement part is incidental. And he said what really makes a Berit... Uh, a covenant, if you will, between God and man is this religious sanction. So I'm going to just read a quote here. This is from pages 23 and 24 of Voss's biblical theology. He says, Berit may be employed where, as a matter of fact, a covenant in the sense of agreement is referred to, which is more than can be said for testament. Only the reason for its occurrence in such places is never that it relates to an agreement. This is purely incidental. The real reason lies in the fact that the agreement spoken of is concluded by some special religious sanction. This, and not its being an agreement, makes it a berit. And similarly in other connections, a purely one-sided promise or ordinance or law becomes a berit, not by reason of its inherent conceptual or etymological meaning, but by the reason of the religious sanction added. From this it will be understood that the outstanding characteristic of a berit is its unalterableness, its certainty, its eternal validity, and not what would in certain cases by the very opposite, its voluntary changeable nature. The berit as such is a faithful berit, something not subject to abrogation. It can be broken by man, and the breach is a most serious sin, but this again is not because it is the breaking of an agreement in general. The seriousness results from the violation of the sacred ceremony by which its sanction was effected. So that's a, that's a mouthful there. There's a lot going on in that quote. But how do we relate it to what we've been looking at? One of the things that we saw in Skilder was the emphasis on the agreement. And with the agreement, the door is almost left open there to a conditionality of the maintenance and the preservation of a covenant. And I think what Voss does helpfully here is says that the covenant is unchangeable because of the religious sanction basically because of god's role in the making of the covenants the covenant is unbreakable it can be broken by man in the sense that man can sin against the covenant but that does not change the covenant itself right so ultimately the covenant is of god um, and this is virtually what actually casper olivianus gets at when he says that christ the king generates in the elect a desire to reconcile themselves to god in how he preserves and increases in them the desire to hold on to their reconciliation so he does so in the form of a covenant so in other words it is of god in its origin even the desire to adhere to the covenant is of God. He, by the Spirit, in the efficacy of Christ's blood, creates a desire in the believer. And God himself preserves it and increases the desire to trust in the work of God. And this is what Olivianus was getting at when I quoted earlier that he says, by his merit, Christ, the priest and king of the church, ratified this covenant forever between God and us. And by his efficacy, he daily administers it in us. Daniel 9. And this is, after all, consistent with our Reformed doctrine of salvation. Our salvation is not conditional 
on us. It's not that we are holding our salvation in our own hands based on our actions or our achievements. Yeah, I think Voss has a really good balance here in first uh, locating its origin, its foundation in simply who God is and in God's own actions. And at the same time, displaying how it ends up working in history. Voss was originally, he taught dogmatics in Calvin Seminary. He would eventually end up teaching in Princeton. One of uh, Voss's contemporaries would have been John Murray, who taught at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And he gives a very concise definition of covenant that I believe is uh, very much in line with what Voss is saying here, but a lot shorter. Murray says a covenant is a sovereign administration of grace and promise. So here it's sovereign. It's something only God can do and God alone can manage its economy. He's the only one that works it in administration by his goodness, his voluntary condescension, his grace, as uh, Andrew was referencing the Westminster Confession earlier. And then it's a promise. So it's by the word of God and the word of God is sure And when we have a promise from God, it will certainly then also be fulfilled. Now, one of the things about Murray's definition of covenant, and we will come back to this in more detail when we talk about the covenant of works, is that Murray was ultimately led to reject that the covenant of works was a covenant, the pre-fall administration between God and Adam. He still, in substance, held to many of the doctrines in which the covenant of works, as historically understood, would consist, but he did not believe that it was a covenant per se. Like I said, we'll talk about that a little more when we get into the covenant of works, because John Murray's discussion and contribution there is certainly something that has to be dealt with. But just that is one thing that Murray's view led to. Uh, Again, as we'll get to, a lot of that discussion has to do, as he alluded to, with the conception, even then a much older understanding of what a covenant is itself and how it is, in a way, according to the party who is obliged to it, different than the administration. So there's a difference in the covenant, who gives it, and the terms of the covenant, what it actually involves. So again, we'll get to that. So with John Murray, the emphasis of the covenant was much more shifted towards grace and promise. Meredith Quine would have been a student of John Murray at Westminster, who later broke with Murray. And Quine settled on a definition of covenant that was more focused on the legal aspect. So, for instance, in Kingdom Prologue, he writes, What is designated berit is primarily a legal disposition, characteristically established by oath, and defined by the terms specified in oath-bound, divinely sanctioned commitments. So you notice here this emphasis on the legal part, on law, And then also on the oath, swearing of an oath was very important in Quine's conception. And then also divinely sanctioned commitment. So basically, what are the sanctions, the penalties and such attached to a covenant? Now, we'll be coming back to Quine. All of these guys that we're listing here in this introduction, as we start to look at the particulars of the covenants, they will come up again and we'll deal in more detail with 
uh, some of the issues that these debates have raised. But just for now, note that Klein places a particular emphasis on legal aspects of covenant. Now, someone who came sort of as a contemporary to both Murray and Quine is actually still alive. He's old now, but still around is O. Palmer Robertson. And he was communicate with the works of John Murray and also Quine and sort of tried to mediate and moderate between them. And so for Robertson, the definition of a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And this comes from his work, The Christ of the Covenants, on page four. He gets to it right out of the gates there. And he actually continues in that quote to kind of then explain a little bit more of what he's saying. Though Andrew pretty much summed it up in saying that this was something of a mediation between Murray and Klein on this legal and grace aspect. But he continues... When God enters into a covenant relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. A covenant is a bond in blood or a bond of life and death sovereignly administered. And we actually get a little bit of then also the definition of a testament, a ratification of the covenant, which actually uh, Voss was speaking a little bit about. Largely negatively, though. For those of you not aware, when we're talking about a testament, think last will and testament so a testament is essentially designating an inheritance designating a disposition that occurs upon a death right this is where Boston had disagreed in the importance and focusing on the distinction between a covenant and a testament and that the testament really speaks to the occurrence of that last will so he's saying it's it's purely incidental if you remember from that quote now, a bit more of another modern theologian with a good definition of a covenant it comes from the chancellor of the Reformed Theological Seminaries, Ligon Duncan. And he says that a divine covenant, which in Hebrew is berit, and in Greek, diatheke, as distinguished from those made between human parties in the scriptures, is a God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. So you get a little bit once more of a mediation between Murray and Klein, but without the baggage of the testament illusion that O. Palmer Robertson has. And Ligon Duncan has done a lot of work in this area. He actually has taught a class many, many times at RTS and even other places on covenant theology. The audio for that course is available online for free. We can add that to the show notes, actually, when we post this episode. It's another good resource for someone looking for an introduction to covenant theology. I like Ligon Duncan's definition here because it's so short. I mean, really, he's stating ultimately what Voss was saying, but again, much shorter, but I think with greater accuracy than Murray, where, you know, he focuses on it being a divine covenant. So it is a something that is a divine work, and he expands in that it is God-initiated. So again, there's the emphasis on the origin and basis of the covenant itself. And he includes that it's an oath, it's a bond, it's binding, it is something that's continuing. It's an active thing throughout history. So in other words, it's living. And then he focuses also on talking about then how it affects his people that are being covenanted with, that it's a relationship with blessings and obligations. And so we get an aspect of both that grace and the curses and the law that comes with it. And I think what's really good about Duncan's definition, as well as Voss, and also Bavink, although Bavink's is not as clear or explicit, these definitions are sufficiently broad 
to account for the biblical evidence that we have regarding covenants. If we narrow the definition more, as for instance Murray and Quine have done in their own various ways, then we run into issues of are we excluding things from meeting the definition of a covenant that actually should. So we need a definition that is sufficiently broad to account for the covenants we have, while also not allowing things to be covenant that are not. Because, you know, this can be pushed to another extreme where everything is a covenant and there's covenantal everything. And that's actually also what you get with the dispensationalists and why they have seven different economies of salvation. Right. Another definition that I've included here, this is a very recent definition and it's actually by Ligon Duncan's colleague at RTS, Richard Belcher, who just put out a book last year called The Fulfillment of the Promises of God, which is a really good introductory level book to covenant theology. And he's looking not just at divine covenants like Legan Duncan was, but he's basically looking for a definition of covenant and then kind of making distinctions of various types. So he says in Fulfillment of the Promises of God, the word covenant, uh, berit, refers to a legal agreement between two parties that is ratified by certain individuals that emphasize the binding nature of the agreement. The phrase in the Old Testament that is used to establish a covenant is to cut a covenant. This phrase highlights the rituals of sacrifices and oaths that are at the heart of establishing a covenant. So there he talks about Genesis 15, the covenant-cutting ceremony with Abraham. And then he says, Covenants are made in a variety of situations. There are covenants between human parties who are equal. He appeals to some examples from Genesis. Between human parties who are not equal. And then between God and humans. So he's offering a definition and explanation of covenants that's broad enough to say that, you know, not all covenants are the same. Because I think a lot of the debates and difficulties in trying to define a covenant in recent decades has stemmed from trying to find a one-size-fits-all definition of a covenant, when in reality there can be variations between covenants divine human and otherwise yeah i think that's a really important thing that you said there andrew and that we don't really want to gloss over that because with all these different definitions that we've been giving and we're just giving a tiny sampling of them really especially in the modern day the issue isn't the doctrine of the covenant it's a clearly biblical teaching and that should not be denied it is prominently there we talked about uh, last episode how it's really a hermeneutical principle when it comes down to it that it is a way of reading scripture with scripture. It's a way of seeing how God relates to his people throughout time. And so really, it's not that there's so many definitions because it's an unsupported doctrine. It's not that people can't agree because it's not a real thing. And it is very wide. It's very broad in how God is relating to his people. And theologians are trying over time to refine and make a concise definition that accurately and faithfully summarizes what scripture is talking about. I think perhaps the best way to get at this, and this is what we will be doing going forward from here, 
As we have to look at the covenants we see throughout the Bible individually, and we can look at how they're the same, but we also have to account for how they are different, for what changes between them, because they are, while there is unity in the covenants, there's different administrations. There's, in certain times, in certain situations, uh, the covenant is different. There's different aspects that are emphasized, other aspects that may be de-emphasized. And so we need to account for the whole of the biblical evidence about covenants to help us understand covenant theology properly. Mm-hmm. God is truly unchanging, and his plan is as sure as his wisdom is perfect, and that his holiness, his ways are all beyond comprehension, really. But he has a perfect way of dealing with different people throughout time. That's really a means for us to be assured that he is completing his work. Right. But also we need to recognize the unity where it exists so as to not fall into the error of dispensationalism where every time God reveals a new administration, it just hits reset on everything. That's not what's mm-hmm. going on either. There is unity and there is continuity. So that's all the time we have for today. We hope you've enjoyed this. We hope you've learned something as we've had this very quick march through a very long and complicated debate and various issues surrounding covenant theology and the definition of a covenant. As always, if you have questions, you can email us, bovcast at gmail.com. No, that does not mean you can sign us up for match.com. I have a confession. It was me. No, it wasn't. I was trying to match Bobcast with another suitable podcast out there. Oh, that'd be tough. <laughs> I mean, if Bobcast was a single guy, what kind of single guy would it be? Wait, what? <laughs> that got weird. He'd be a weird guy. Yeah, talks too much, <laughs> rambles on, uses a lot of big words. A little monotonous. Yeah. Poor fella. And so, on that rather unusual note, we will sign off for now. Toadzines. Toadzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.